is a critical piece of spreading the good news. But what happens when there isn't an opportunity to serve? Is there a way we can still reach people? Definitely. way to be an example of Christ is to love people when it when it doesn't make sense even your enemies even those who hurt you love covers a multitude of sins don't you think the best way to be an example of Christ is to love others you know I couldn't agree with you more I actually know a story about someone who did just that everyone and happy Mother's Day once again. Let me be the first one or the last one hopefully for today to say, not last one, but meaning like the last one of here at the church family, to say happy Mother's Day. And uh, we appreciate all of our moms and those moms who are with us here today, as well as those moms who maybe we left home a long time ago. There's so many things we appreciate about our moms, right guys? We appreciate how they care for us, appreciate how they love us, how they nurture us, how they feed us, how they clean up after us. But you already know all that. I'm not teaching you anything new there. So what I want to do is something that you won't hear in most churches today. I want to tell you what we do not appreciate about moms. There's one area that our moms, we love them to death. There's one area we love them to death, but they don't teach us anything in this area. That's the area of technology. So we're going to do a new segment here today on Mother's Day, and we'll see how long it lasts if I survive. Okay, the, today's segment, we may do it in coming years. And that is, we are going to talk about texts from mom. We've all received a text message from our mom, okay? And we're trying to decipher what it says. So we try to compile some different, let's just say, interesting text messages from some moms out there entering into the digital world. And I got four for you right here. First one that we see right here. Give you a couple seconds to read it right here. One mom trying to figure out what the LOL means, and she thought she had an idea, okay, what LOL means. But as you read it, you will see your great aunt passed away, LOL. Why is that funny? <laughs> hey, look, I can, I can commiserate with this mother right here. I get text messages with all kinds of acronyms and abbreviations and uh, LM whatever and uh, what, and I don't understand any of that stuff and I'm always Googling that stuff. So this poor mother thought that she knew what LOL meant and she discovered that it wasn't. She has to make a lot of phone calls after this. Here's a very confused mom. Our next one is a very, very confused mom, as you'll see right here. And again, my heart goes out to this mom. You can just feel her pain as she's typing that text message. <laughs> you can feel her pain, can't you? It's too bad they don't just put like a big button where you can put a space on it on a text message. It's too bad. They hopefully come up with something like that. This next one is kind of cruel. This one, the mom kind of sticks it back to the kid. This is kind of cruel. But hey, you moms, you'll understand. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> kind of cruel. Kind of cruel. But sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get a response from those kids, right? Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I see all the mothers right now taking notes. Ah, that's how you get them right there. Okay. And last but not least, my absolute, absolute, absolute favorite one. This one made me 
fall on the floor laughing. It is referencing a mother who found, who was going on her computer. And you know how Google changes the picture in the middle, okay, of Google. You know, it changes the picture on whatever. Well, this mom says this to her son. <laughs> uh, we love you moms. We love you moms. You don't run the Google. <laughs> we love you moms. We love you moms, all right? No one's allowed to point to their mother right now if this is one of their text messages. We love you, Mom, so much. But technology, just kind of stick with what you know, Mom. Stick with the stuff that you know. Stick to the stuff that you're, a good, that you're an expert at. Welcome to part four in this series called Mission Witness. What we are talking about is this idea of witnessing as when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he resurrected from the dead, the tomb was empty. First thing, first person that he met was a lady named Mary Magdalene. The first thing he told her is, go and tell my brethren. Go and witness to the resurrection. He met his apostles and disciples, and he kept, told them, you guys go and preach to all the ends of the earth. Preach to every creature. Because you cannot believe in the resurrection without witnessing to the resurrection. If you don't witness, then that means you probably don't believe or you don't appreciate, and we don't want that to be us. So what we're talking about in this series is different ways that we can witness. And what we've seen, we're looking at this verse, 2 Timothy 4, 5, St. Paul says to his faithful disciple Timothy, who was his best disciple, his best pupil, but he says to him, the final step of your ministry, to fulfill your ministry is what? You be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We are talking about how the what is the same for all of us. Witness to the resurrection. Preach the gospel. The what is the same. But the how is different. And God created us with different gifts, different talents, different personalities, different sets of abilities, because God wants every creature to hear the gospel in their own language. And when I say language, I don't just mean spoken language. And what we've been talking about in this series is different ways to preach the same message. And we talked about in first week, the first methodology that we typically associate with preaching or witnessing is speaking. And who was our saint or our hero for the first week was St. Fotini, the Samaritan woman. But we read about what happened to the Samaritan woman after John chapter 4 and the rest of what church history teaches us and how she preached and witnessed by her speaking. Week after that, we looked at the second method, which is change. And we saw how you may not be an eloquent speaker, but certain people preach the gospel and witness to the resurrection of Christ by the way they fight to change the world. These are the Martin Luther Kings of the world. And this is someone we looked at, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought against Nazi Germany out of his faith in the gospel. Last week, we saw the third method is a method of serve. So we did love, we did change, we did serve. And serve, we looked at George Mueller. And we saw how George Mueller, without ever preaching a sermon in front of the world, preached the greatest sermon by serving the orphans, the street kids over there in Germany at a time when they, or in England, I'm sorry, when they had no one to take care of them. So much so that the newspaper, the local newspaper, after George Mueller served more than 120,000 orphans, in the course of his life, the local newspaper said, as we said last week, that George Mueller was raised to show that the age of miracles is not past. That's what the local newspaper said. Another one said that he rebuked the skeptical tendencies of the time. Never set out to preach, but he witnessed by the way he served. Today is our fourth methodology, and today is one that I reserve specifically for Mother's Day because it's one that I believe encompasses what a mother is more than anything else. As you saw at the top of your hand out there, what we're going to talk about today is love. And we're going to look at a saint, a hero of the faith, who exemplified love 
but not the love that we usually think of when we think of moms. Not the changing diapers love that Susan was talking about or the clean and vomit love. Not the multitasking kind of love, but love to such an extreme degree that honestly, every time I read her story, and I've been like in her story this past week, it is an inhuman, it is an impossible level of love. Just by show of hands, how many people have heard of Elizabeth Elliot before? I guess it's just a handful, not too many. Elizabeth Elliot's story, she's a modern day hero and that she died just two years ago in 2015 at the age of 88. Her story, we'll go through it quickly. Elizabeth was the daughter of missionaries, and we'll pick up her story when she's in college at Wheaton College, which is a uh, religious institution. She's studying to be a missionary. While there, she meets her future husband, Jim Elliott, all right, and she falls in love with him, and the two of them get married. He also has a desire to be a missionary. So both of these two people are saying, we want to spend the rest of our lives to be missionaries. Now, before I continue with her story, I just I got to clarify our terminology here. Because I say the word mission, and probably you have an idea in your mind of what that entails. I've been on many quote-unquote mission trips. I know many people here have been on mission trips. But the kind of mission trips that you and I think of is not what necessarily Elizabeth and Jim Elliott thought of when they talked about mission back in the 1950s. We talk about mission. Okay, some people here have served on missions in Africa. I've gone to... I've been in Tanzania, I've been in Uganda, I've been in Kenya, I've been in Nigeria, I've been in Zambia, different places. I know several people here have served in some of those places. Some are going this summer. I know some people have gone and served in Brazil, all right, or Bolivia. I one time heard about a mission trip to Hawaii, which sounds like a great draw, if you could get a draw, okay, places to go on mission. These are great. But when we talk about mission in this context, what we are referring to is we are a group of Americans wearing American clothes, talking our American language, eating our American food. Actually, my mission trip was where I first learned that peanut butter doesn't only go with jelly, it goes with Nutella even better. Nutella and peanut butter. I'm telling you, that's a winner right there. And if you refrigerate it, it's even better. We go and we take our Americanness everywhere we go. And basically what we do is we do a pastoral visit. We go to people who have already heard the gospel and have already had it explained to them and already understand it, but they just need help, okay? And like struggling to live it, just like all of us are. So really, this is more of a pastoral visit, not really a mission in the true content, in the true meaning of what the word mission means. When Elizabeth and Jim Elliot meant mission, they meant go to a people who have never heard the gospel and never believed in Jesus Christ. And that took them in 1953 to the Amazon jungle of Ecuador. And they went and they found themselves serving a tribe of natives, okay, of native South Americans, which would be like Native Americans, like Indians, a tribe called, I'm going to mess up this name, forgive me if I, if I don't pronounce it right, Quechua, the Quechua tribe. And the Quechua tribe had never heard the gospel of Christ. And they went with a group, and they were the first ones to introduce them to who is Jesus Christ. They lived among the people, they ate their food, they spoke their language, they dressed like they dressed, they lived among the people, and that were doing real mission. People had never heard the gospel. Me and you, that's more than enough to say, you know what? We did our duty, and we retire right off into the sunset. Jim Elliott heard, while he was there, about a primitive tribe called the Akuas, Akua tribe. And the Akua tribe lived deep, deep, deep in the Amazon jungle. I searched online to find pictures of the Akua tribe to show you what they look like. There's no pictures. There are pictures of what they look like today, and what they look like today is very different than what they looked like back then, Thanks in large part to Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. But you couldn't find pictures of them. They were one of the most savage, primitive tribes that existed in the time. A group of people that wore no clothes, 
a group of people that living as if it is like there was no contact with the outside world. They still made fire by, by sticks and rocks. Like that's how they lived in the 1950s. They had never heard the gospel, and Jim Elliott said, I will not die until I take the gospel to those people. There was a problem, though. In addition to being very primitive, they were also very savage. One of the most brutal tribes in the entire world. They were known for their brutality and savageness, so much so, five times a group of missionaries had tried to go preach the gospel to them. And all five of those times, every missionary was killed by spear. It was a neighboring tribe that had believed. And the neighboring tribe wanted to preach them, like their own people, just neighboring tribe, brought the gospel to them. Before this, they were on good terms. After they brought in the gospel, the neighboring tribe, they were all killed by spears as well. It was a land where there was oil that the Akuas occupied. And there was an oil rig there. But the oil rig had become vacated because they kept killing any white man who appeared in their village. And the oil company would send people to try to man the oil rig and they would all end up killed. The oil company with the, the Ecuadorian government decided that there's too much money at stake here that we have to get to that oil. So they made a plan to wipe out the Akua tribe so they could get to the oil. And they were going to come in with the army and their weapons, all that stuff, and wipe them out. Jim Elliott said, I cannot let them get wiped out before they have heard the gospel of Christ. So he made it his mission. But I'm going to take the gospel to them because they're about to get wiped out. He knew he couldn't do this alone. He recruited some friends. First and foremost, he recruited a man named Nate Saint, who was an airplane pilot because there was no roads to get there. And they got themselves a plane. There's four friends, Nate, Jim, two, and two, three other friends. There's five of them in all. And they would fly over to try to find where the Akuas were. And they would try and find them. Finally, they spotted them after a couple weeks of searching. They couldn't just go down there because they'd get killed. So what they did is they found a way to lower gifts to the Akua tribe from their airplane. They would lower gifts to basically say, we come in peace. And they would lower the gifts and they would go back. And they'd lower the gifts and they'd go back. And then eventually, after doing this for many weeks, they felt like they started to have some trust to the people. The people would wave to them. The people would like, like a thank you wave. At one point in time, the people actually returned the basket with gifts and sent it back up. So Jim and his friends said, now the time is to go down there and make contact. They land on a small patch of land, and they set up shop. First day, the natives seemed very welcoming, very open to them. And they struggled to communicate, but they'd picked up enough in the language they could communicate. And the natives were open. Second day, they were invited to the home of some people, and they were excited to hear the gospel. And this, this, is, this is going very, very, very well. Third day, they wake up in the morning and they are approached by two women, two Akua women. And they, as they had been doing the past two days, go and try to approach the women as well in a friendly way. But they quickly realized that the women were not coming with friendly mindset, friendly attitudes. They turned around, they were surrounded by 10 Akua men, all with spears in their hand. The 10 men killed them. They killed all five of them. They mutilated their bodies, and they threw them in the river. You know the amazing part? Jim and all his four friends had guns. And they had spears. And they decided that they would not pull out their gun. Why? Because they were confident that if they died, they knew where they were going. But they made a vow, we will not kill a man who has not heard the gospel of Christ and had a chance at salvation. So you had five men with guns, all died without ever pulling out their guns. But Jim Elliott isn't the star of our story. I told you Elizabeth is the star. What could Elizabeth possibly do, the widow 
that would outshine what I just told you Jim did. Get ready. After Jim was killed, his wife was waiting back home. She waited about two weeks. Dad, that you know, you, you wives, y'all know it. You can feel it when something ain't right. And he had gone out on many trips, but she felt something wasn't right. After about two weeks, they called the United States government, and it basically this was a national crisis. And where are these men? And they sent a uh, military to come try to rescue these guys, and they found all five of their bodies in a river. Now you have Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, widow with a 10-month-old child. What did she do next? We're going to watch a couple video clips right here, which will tell you. This is the words of her daughter, who at the time was 10 months when her father was killed. Tell you exactly what Elizabeth did next. After my father's death, my mother got to know two Wairani women who had fled the tribe because of, of the violence. And they said, we want you and the sister of Nate Saint, we want you to come and tell our people about God. While we lived with them, and we were there almost two and a half years, I, of course, got to know all of the tribe and the 10 men who had done the killing. Amazingly, I really don't remember being afraid of them. They were always laughing, and they would always make my mother laugh. So I simply enjoyed being with them. When passing through of course, it was a tragedy, and of course, I often wished that I had known my dad, still do. But I really believe that God allowed this to happen so that more and more people could actually see what real commitment to Christ means. And I really don't believe their lives were wasted. Before most of you were born, I was living in a small thatched roofed house in a small jungle clearing on a small river called the Tuano in the small country of Ecuador. An ordinary day would begin any, anywhere from three to five o'clock in the morning, and the low crooning of an Alcus song would often fit into my dreams for a while before I awakened. And then gradually I would come to and hear the Indians still in their hammocks in the houses around the clearing singing their two or three note songs. I have counted as many as 70 repetitions <laughs> of verse 1. But before you lose your mind, they go on to verse 2. You wish I'd quit? You wish I'd quit. But I only sang four or five repetitions. While they were singing their 60 or 70, I could hear the pat-pat of feather fans as the women fanned the fires, and then the soft cracking sound as they tapped manioc with a stick. This was a starchy tuber they cultivated, the principal food of Amazonian people. They peeled and split it and steamed it in big clay pots with leaves for lids, and they would push the glowing log tips together, set the pots on top, and I would hear the as they blew on their fires. Roosters would crow, the fanning and the songs would go on, and as dawn broke behind the tall trees, I would give up pretending to be asleep. 
I'd open my eyes and see the two teenage boys who lived in the house next door. Our houses had no walls, and they had built a platform from which they could observe very closely everything that I did, day and night. And they kept everybody informed. The first announcement of the day would be, which means she's awake. <laughs> I was a freak to these people. They were the Auca Indians, spelled A-U-C-A, of the Ecuadorian rainforest, a people so isolated that most of them had never laid eyes on anybody they didn't know. So primitive, they still made fire with two sticks. They wore no clothes at all, only a piece of string around their hips. A string, not a G-string. And when I asked them what it was for, they looked at me horrified. Well, you certainly would, wouldn't expect us to go around naked, would you? <laughs> Let's be honest. We'll get the lights back on now. That's hard enough. That's hard enough. Add on top of that, those people that she's living with, like it's hard enough to live there. Those are the people who killed her husband and left her a widow and left her child an orphan. And she stayed there for two years. I don't think she preached the most eloquent sermon. I don't think she changed the laws of the Alcas with her protesting or anything like that. But I think what she did embodies everything that Christianity is all about, which is love. I want to bring to you right now, okay, here at STSA, we have 10 core values. Now, I want to show you our first and our 10th core value because I think they beautifully illustrate exactly what she exhibited. Like, we're striving for what she illustrated, which is actually what Christ illustrated for us. First core value and last core value. Our first core value is limitless acceptance. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. And I hope if you're a guest or you were a guest at some point in time that you felt this limitless acceptance because every single person, we accept them limitlessly because that's how we were accepted by God. Limitless acceptance. Number two, or number 10, I should say, genuine love for community. We bleed with love for the community around us, especially those without Christ. Highlight, especially those without Christ. We don't just care about spiritual needs, physical, emotional, social as well. We seek to be a true blessing to the community whatever way we can. If you ask me, summarize all of Christianity, summarize life of Christ in two statements, I would say limitless acceptance and genuine love for everyone, community, but however you want to define it, but genuine love for everyone. And if this is how Christ looks at us, then it is our duty, just as Elizabeth Elliot did with those Alcas, Akuas, I'm sorry, to look at others as well. And if I had to summarize that, I'm going to say it this way. Here's our lesson today from Elizabeth Elliot. No three points, no ten lessons, one lesson. And that is this, that God accepts us and loves us just as we are. And sometimes we get so deep into our theology and into our spirituality and into our striving for a perfect life that we forget about some of the basics. And Elizabeth Elliot reminds us of the basics. is that God accepts us, limitless acceptance, and genuine love just as we are. With that said, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to improve. That doesn't mean that he wants us to stay where we are forever. But you know what? The God wants us to, you know the whole, like God loves us just as, exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. 
that's more of like a Father's Day message, okay, of like improve yourself and work on yourself and be better. So we'll save that message for Father's Day. Let's just focus on the Mother's Day message, which is the unconditional love. Yes, he doesn't want us to stay there, but again, forget about that. That's a Dad's Day kind of a thing. A Mother's Day is just unconditional love, exactly as you are, no matter how you are. Don't our moms love us, okay? Our dads may say, when you get your report card, the moms just love us. A, F, D, incomplete, whatever it may be. The dads, you know, you should study, you should work a plan. To get but the moms, they just love us. Dads, come and see a mess. I'm not saying this is against the dads, okay? I'm just way myself, okay? Dads, we see a mess. Who made this mess? We should clean this up. Teach responsibility. A mom, she just love. Doesn't matter what the mess is. Just love. Unconditional acceptance, unconditional love. And did you realize that there is never a moment in life, never a moment in life, on your worst day, on your absolute worst day, that you are not 100% accepted and loved by God just as you are. A lot of sin, Samaritan woman sin, loved and accepted as you are. Caught in sinful act, John chapter 8, the lady who was caught in adultery, in the act, like want to get away kind of a moment, loved just and accepted just as you are. St. Paul killed Christians, loved and accepted just as you are. That's what Elizabeth Elliot says. They killed her husband, they left her a widow, loved and accepted just as you are. Tell you a story to make every mother cringe right now. Story about myself. There's a story about how I was introduced to my son when my son was born into this world. But to, before I tell you the story, I gotta give you a little background on me. All right. I'm not the most kidsy kind of a guy. Like I'm not like babies and goo goo gaga and all that kind of stuff. I think we baby our babies, okay? And I think we should speak to them like adults and rational and reasonable. And I feel like society would be a better place if we did that. But anyway. I'm not the most kidsy kind of a guy. When I became a priest, as a priest, you kind of got to play the role, okay? It's like politicians, you got to kiss babies. So as a priest, you got to kind of pretend that you like babies, okay? So like, oh, and he's so cute, and what's little tiger's name? And it's like, it's a girl, okay? What's, wh whatever, okay? So you got to kind of play the role. But I was not a kid's kind of a guy. I remember the first time I ever did, there's a prayer in the, in the church when somebody gets a baby, like it's called uh, the prayer of their first bath. Okay, you do it in eight days. So I remember when I was doing the, the thing, this is my first one, and I'm like, okay, and do the prayer and smile for the camera. And then, so you, you do the prayer over the water, then you pick up the baby and you put the baby in the water. All right? So I took the, they took the clothes off the baby, put the baby, and I was about to put the baby in the water. And I'm like, what's that in my left hand? And it was something brown and squishy on my left hand. Yeah. Okay, so that was it. After that, I don't take the diaper off. Man, you do, I pray over the water and I just splash the baby. Okay, we do... Maybe that's why, why the church went from immersion to, to sprinkling. Okay, there's a practical reason right there. Anyway, before I had children, I accepted children as a necessary part of God's creation and a, and a, and a function, their function to create more people, more like to, to get society to keep going. But I didn't feel like there's really much value in them in and of themselves. I'm being honest, okay? One time I've told this story before. One time I went to visit a family and had dinner with the family. And you know, like, hey, it'll be cute. Let's put little Junior next to Father Anthony, okay? You know, and I'm like, goo-goo and gaga, but I don't really want to deal with you. So I say, you know what? Let's put little Junior right there. This is the most disgusting event I've ever seen in my life. But if you want to know why it took us so long to have kids, maybe this is the reason why right here. They put that little guy next to me, and that little guy was eating SpaghettiOs, okay? But, I mean, this is the most disgusting thing. The SpaghettiOs would kind of go in the mouth, but more came out than went in, okay? And after it came out of the mouth, it would go, like, in an ear, okay? Pull it out the other one through the hair, in the nose. Like, it was the most disgusting thing. This isn't an actual picture, but it was kind of looking something like this, okay? 
And this kid's sitting right next to me like that, and I'm trying to eat my sandwich, and the kid's like, you know, trying to play and be funny. And at one point in time, he looked at me with like a, a goofy little face like, want to play? I don't know what I looked like, but this is what I felt like when I glared back at him. <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying, touch me and I'll burn your crib down tonight. <laughs> I'm not a kid-friendly guy by my nature. Fast forward to January 2005. There you go, I'm winning some points back. <laughs> January 2005. Me and Marianne went into a hospital. There was a room right there, there was a doctor. It was me and Marianne and doctor. A couple minutes later, it was me, Marianne, and doctor, and a new thing. And that thing was called my son. And I'm telling you, the part of the story that Marianne doesn't like is when they, Marianne had a C-section, so they couldn't bring the baby to the mother, so they bring the baby to the dad. So I'm like, like this moment, and, and they bring the baby to me, and they're like, you want to hold him? And I'm like, <laughs> because it's slimy when they come out of there. So I'm like, so I was like, can you towel him down first? <laughs> so like skip that part of it. Okay, so they, they toweled him down, they got rid of all the slime and all the gunk and all the, the juice that was in there, and then they brought the boy to me. And I'm telling you, after the operation, the C-section, okay, they, they wheel you over to another room. And during that time, Marianne, because all the medicine, whatever, so she was knocked out. We sat in the, in, the, in the hallway of Fairfax Hospital for more than two hours. And I sat there with my boy for two hours, and I didn't say nothing, I didn't do nothing, I just sat there in the hallway, and I just stared at my boy. I'm telling you, at that moment in time, it was as if God took something from heaven and put something in my heart that never existed before. And this thing called my child. My boy, that's my boy. And if at that moment in time, the doctor would have said, the boy is sick, he needs a kidney, I'd have said, take mine. The boy needs a, uh, a pancreas, take mine. I may have an extra one in there, like I don't know how many pancreases we have. <laughs> Whatever they would have said that that boy needed, I would have said, take mine. But that boy didn't do anything for me. That boy was yucky. That boy was spitty-uppy. That boy was getting ready to poop his pants. Like that boy was getting ready just to bring drama into this world. He hadn't done anything valuable, but he's my boy. And you know what? That exact feeling is exactly how God feels about every single person around you. That's how God feels about your annoying boss. That's how God feels about your foul-mouthed coworker. That's how God feels about the neighbors, about the neighbor that you like on the right and the neighbor whose dog poops in your yard on the left. That's exactly how God feels about them. That's exactly how God feels about people, even if they killed your husband and left you a widow and your daughter an orphan. And that's what Elizabeth Elliot knew. That even though they had killed her husband, and even though they had done the unthinkable to her and put her in the worst position in life and tortured her more than anyone else, God accepts them and loves them just as they are. Now, that's not an easy thing for us to accept. That's not an easy thing for us. That's a difficult thing. Like we're talking in theory what she did in reality. But we are the mechanism. We are the means. If God loves every single person in that way, do you know how they will know? Through us. We are the means. The Akua Indians know God's love today because Elizabeth Elliot showed it to them. And if she didn't show it to them, they wouldn't know it. And your neighbors, your coworker, your boss, your whatever, 
may never know that unconditional acceptance and love unless you tell them. This is what St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2. He said, you are our epistle. You are our epistle. Before there was a Bible in writing, there was a Bible writing in the hearts, in flesh. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. Did you know that everywhere you go, you are preaching the gospel, whether you know it or don't know it? You are preaching the gospel. The only question is, what gospel are you preaching? Everywhere you go, you tell people how God feels about them. And what message are you sending? That God loves you and accepts you just as you are? This is why the church, our church, the church, must, must, must. I can't tell you how passionate I am about this. The church must be characterized by limitless acceptance and genuine love. It must be. Because we are the body of Christ. And if the body of Christ is not listening to the head, then the body is broken. And the body needs to be gotten rid of. Because if the body doesn't, li if my hand doesn't listen to what my head says and there's a problem with my hand, I need to get rid of it, get a new hand. I, I can't function with my body ignoring my head. And if the head is limitless acceptance, just as you are, and if the head is genuine love, just as you are, then how can the body be anything other than that? This place has to be a place where no matter what people have done, no matter what people are doing, we will accept them and we will love them just as they are. We will hopefully not leave them as they are, but we will accept them just as they are and hopefully help them to get better. Because that's what the head, that's what Christ does for all of us. Now, with that said, let me explain or let me go ahead and answer what some of you may be thinking. But shouldn't the church be, anyone who starts this, but shouldn't the church be, shouldn't the church be holy? Shouldn't the church be away from sin? Shouldn't the church be a place of righteousness? Like, aren't we supposed to separate? Aren't we supposed to separate and not be unequally yoked? And aren't we supposed to judge immorality? Anyone who says that, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay, I'm going to give the benefit of that. Some people may be thinking that in an honest way, and that's fair. Some people are not thinking in an honest way. Not here. Some people outside give you the benefit of the doubt. And some of the most pious, holy defenders of the faith are the most judgmental, arrogant, impure, unholy people on this planet. And forgive me for saying that. Some of the most staunch defenders of the faith are some of the most wicked people on the planet. Not you. You are asking in benefit of the doubt. You are asking in faith, saying, shouldn't the church be? Well, let me tell you what the church should be. Anyone who says that church shouldn't be a place where you just allow anyone in, and church shouldn't be a place of unlimited acceptance, church shouldn't be a place like that, I say to you what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God written in them. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God in them. Because number one, that is not what the scriptures say, and number, which I'll get to in a second. I'll bring you a verse in a second. But even before we get to the scriptures, because like I always say, you can make a Bible verse say just about anything you want. So if you want a Bible verse to justify your lifestyle, come ask me. I will find one for you. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. It's like the Constitution. You can argue both sides of it, and people are using the same passage of the Constitution to argue exact opposite things. So regardless of what the scriptures say, which we'll see in a second, for sure, this is not the life that Christ lived. And the life that Christ lived, if we are his body, the way Jesus lived, Jesus was friend of sinners or not friend of sinners. Jesus was friends with people who were unaccepted by society or not. Jesus spent all his time in places with just holy huddles or Jesus was out amongst the people so much so that the people said, you must not be holy because you are a friend of sinners and you are all the time out there with people who are unholy. You know why? You know what Jesus was for sure? Listen carefully to this one. Jesus was, 
He didn't care what people said about him. He didn't care about rules. What Jesus cared about was people. People. And we, as a church, we always care about people because that's what Jesus cared about. He didn't care about his image. He didn't care about what people were going to write about him on their blogs. What he cared about was people. And when people needed God, Jesus was there for them. And that's what we will be as a church as well. What about the verses that say, do not keep company with immorality, immoral people? What about the verses that say, light has no fellowship with darkness? What about the verses that say, do not be unequally yoked? Look, I'm going to show you those verses right now, but I'm going to show you a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that if you read it, if you read it, you will see very clearly what the scriptures are talking about, and it's not what you think. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. You pause the story right there. See, that's saying this, that we cannot accept that person in our church. That person's lifestyle is not like ours. We can't accept them. They're sexually immoral. We can't accept people in the church. Okay, just keep reading. Yet I certainly, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. This is how clear this is. He's saying, I'm not telling you not to talk to anybody out there who's sexually immoral. Because if that was the case, then I'd have to leave the world. So what are you talking about, St. Paul? Well, here, he finishes. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, and that person, not even to eat with such a person. Listen carefully. Well, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? For those who are outside, God judges. Key was what he said back here. I agree. Separate. I agree, no immorality. I agree, no fellowship, light, and darkness. I agree with anyone named a brother. Make it simple for you. What St. Paul is saying, you like it or don't like it, the truth of the matter is there's a double standard in Christianity. There's a 100% double standard. And God is not embarrassed or shy, and we will not be shy about it. There is a double standard, and the double standard is this. Those who are outside the church cannot be judged as those who are inside the church. There is a 100% double standard. And the double standard is that we will judge ourselves harshly and others outside easily. We will not do the opposite. That's what the Pharisees were. They were easy on themselves, tough on everybody else. We're never going to be a Pharisee church. We're never going to be a Pharisee Christian. We are going to be tough on ourselves. And you know what? If there is a brother or sister amongst us right now who is sliding in the wrong direction and walking in a direction where they need to be called out, we will call them out. Because that's our duty. Not to be a, a company with an immoral person who is amongst us right now, they need to be called out. Not because we hate them or not because we want to exclude them, because we want to help them in a, in, a, in a corrective kind of manner. But we will not hold people outside the church to the same standards people inside the church. And if you do, then that says about your theology about the church. And that shows how little you believe in the church. Because I believe the church is everything. And I believe the church is my life. And I believe the church is my mother. And how can I expect somebody who doesn't have a mother, who doesn't have life, who doesn't have a church to feed them, church to wash them, church to guide them, how can somebody outside be expected to behave the same way as, as somebody inside? They say the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. You've heard that before, right? Hurt people hurt people. Well, I'm going to flip it and say the same thing. They say, you know what? Forgiven people probably find it easier to forgive. People who have been blessed by God probably find it easier to bless others. 
people who have been dealt with generously probably find it much easier to be generous with others. So I'm not going to hold people out there to the same standard as I'm going to hold us to. Our standard is much higher. It's the double standard of Christianity. That's why Elizabeth Elliot stayed with the Akuas. She did not stay with the Akuas to, quote unquote, do the right thing. She did not grin and bear it and say, you know what? I got to preach to these people who killed my husband. She, with genuine love in her heart, said to herself something which is unfathomable for us because people don't even hurt us to the fraction of what they hurt her. She said to herself, how can I expect those people who are without Christ to behave the same way as us with Christ? So you know what? They killed my husband, but I still love them. Now, if they have Christ and they did the same action, like if it had been one of the, the American guys who did it, that's a different story. Like if it had been a Christian who did it, that's a different story. But how can I expect somebody who hasn't heard the gospel of love and forgiveness and mercy to behave the same way as someone who has? Said another way, a sick person will always behave in a sick manner until they get the medicine. I'm not going to judge the sick people by the, by the healthy people's standards. When they enter into the hospital, then the standard goes up. But I'm not going to judge somebody outside, and we as a church never will. We will be limitless acceptance and genuine love. The fruit of Elizabeth Elliot's work. We're going to watch another short little video clip right now. about Now, this is, is the, the account of the son of one of the other guys who was killed. I told you there was Nate Saint and Jim Elliot. Those were the two. Okay, there was three others as well, but those are the two that I mentioned by their name. This is the son of Nate Saint, who was a young child when his father was killed. And he, along with Elizabeth Elliot and his own mother, okay, stayed and served the Akuas. This is the man who he calls grandfather, who you'll see, okay, and you'll hear from, was the man who killed his father. He calls him grandfather. Watch. We have, we have become, as grandfather says, we have become like just one family because we all have the same father. A long time ago, my, my grandfathers, they were very angry. They would die, they would die, they were angry, and they were killing each other. Pinte is the word for angry or furious. We would go and spear other people in our tribe and they would come and spear us. It was just like that. Now we're, we're not being angry. Said, now some of us who were enemies, who were hating and furious with each other, now we've become like one, like like one head, like one family. That's what I have to say. Do you understand me? Okay. People have been able in this story to identify with my loss, but what they can't seem to identify with is how I and my family, how we experienced gain. You know, when my dad was killed and I was a little boy, I can still remember that sense of anguish, disenfranchisement. I mean, my whole little boy universe revolved around my dad. I wanted to grow up and be just like him. He was my hero. When my mom told me that he was never coming back, I mean, it shattered my whole world. I thought there was nothing left to live for. Do you know what? Just a short while ago, when Christmas was coming, 
and grandfather came up to our house. I saw him with my three, three of my granddaughters. He was holding one who was asleep in his arms, and the other two were draped over his shoulders. And that night, as Jenny and I were going to bed, grandfather had already gone to sleep, and Jenny said, just want to go in and kiss him once more, don't you? And you know, then I realized that same yearning that I had for my father, I now feel for grandfather Minkai, the man who killed him. That's something that doesn't happen in, in fiction. That can only happen in true life. person like me can't help but be moved a little bit by that look here's what I want to say Romans chapter 5 verse 6 through 8 for when we were still without strength this is Elizabeth Elliot what she did when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us Elizabeth Elliot what happened they killed person who was closest to her, her most dearest, dearest, dearest person in her life. And what did she do? She went to them. She stayed with them. She taught them. She guided them. She led them. That sounds a lot to me like another story I know about a father who sends his son to a group of savage people who lived in a separate world on a separate planet. And these savage people liked the preaching of the son, and they enjoyed it so much and they, when they benefited from it, but they didn't really trust the son. So they killed the son in a brutal, savage, horrific way. And what did the father do? The father had every right to say, to heck with you. But he didn't have to say to heck. He could have said the real word, which I can't say on stage. He had every right to say to heck with you. I can say it, hell. Jesus said it, so I can say it. But he didn't. What did he do? He sent his spirit to be amongst us, to teach us, to guide us, to instruct us, to help us. He didn't judge us according to our actions. He judged us according to our sickness. He didn't see us as people who had committed a crime. He saw us as people who were in need of salvation and healing. And my brothers and sisters, if that's how God looked at us, we must look at the rest of the world that way. A lady named Teresa of Avila, Catholic nun from several centuries ago, said, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good, and yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. There are people in your life who don't know God, they think they know God, but they don't know God. The Akuas thought they knew God, but they didn't. They thought they were okay, but they weren't. They were sick. They were in a state of death. They didn't know who, the, who God was. They were angry. They were violent. They were mean. They were bad people. But it's because they didn't know God. And there are people in your life who don't know God as well. And how will you respond to them? How, what will you show them? Will you show them that your God needs them to get their act together first? Or will you show them genuine love and limitless acceptance? We've been talking about different ways to, to, to witness. 
First one was speak. You know what? You may not be eloquent. You may not be able to speak. Some people don't want to listen. Second one was change. You may not have a platform through which you can change anything. Third one was serve. Some people will reject your service. But you know what no one can reject is love. No one can reject love and no one can stop you from being the most loving person on the planet, the most accepting, the most loving. That doesn't mean we accept sin, but that does mean we accept all sinners. It doesn't mean that we accept immorality, but it means that we accept immoral people and we try to help them become moral. Because how can I help someone that I cannot speak to? How can I improve, help improve someone's life who I cannot reach out to and touch and hug and invite? The most powerful element in this world is love. And you have the ability to do it. More powerful than anything else in this world. Finish off with this verse. Beloved, 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We have the power in our hands, the power of God. If God is love, and we have the ability to love, and we have the most powerful, powerful, powerful thing. Now it's time for us, body of Christ, to go out there and use it. Happy Mother's Day. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you from the depth of our heart for your incredible, amazing love for us. Sometimes we just need a reminder, Lord, of, of, of who we are in your eyes. We're your sons and we're your daughters. We're your children. I pray, Lord, that you would put inside of us a true, genuine love, not just for our own kids, but put that love for, for your kids, for the people who are around us, Lord, that annoy us, that get on our nerves, that we judge, and we say they're bad. Put inside us, Lord, a genuine love to make you proud, that we can never even imagine loving someone who committed such a heinous crime like Elizabeth Elliot did. But Lord, if you put that love inside her, I pray you would put that same love inside all of us to forgive, to love, to accept, to be there for one another, and to exemplify your love the same way you loved us. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. The prayers of all your saints. Here, says we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. <laughs>